Welcome to IBS Chat from the IBS Patient Support Group. I'm Jeffrey Roberts, the IBS expert and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group website and social media platforms and creator of World IBS Day, held every April 19th. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome at age 16 and I've lived with IBS for over 25 years. It's my mission to educate people living with irritable bowel syndrome and to raise awareness about research and treatment options and what it's like to live with IBS. The IBS Patient Support Group is a community to inform and support irritable bowel syndrome sufferers and can be reached at ibspatient.org. Supporting IBS patients is something that I think of every day because the quality of life of an IBS patient and those that support them is very important to me. I'm here today at Digestive Disease Week in Chicago with my good friend and colleague Pam Emmer. Pam is a GI motility patient who has overcome SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. She's been a patient advocate, fundraiser, and cheerleader for Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA and the MASS program for almost 10 years. She's active on Facebook and Twitter as Life After SIBO and Instagram as Life After underscore SIBO. Pam recently launched her own website and it's located at lifeaftersibo.com. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Pimentel, who is here to talk to us about his research. So welcome, Dr. Pimentel, to DDW. We're thrilled to, uh, to have you here with us. I want to ask you the first question is, where do you think we are in unraveling the illness we call irritable bowel syndrome? Well, it's good to be here, first of all, and thank you for asking me to, to uh, do this. Um, irritable bowel syndrome, as everyone well knows, is there is no gold standard for diagnosis. So if you don't have Crohn's, if you don't have microscopic colitis, if you don't have celiac and you meet a certain set of criteria, you get put in this basket. Uh, and so irritable bowel syndrome is probably a mixed bag of multiple things. Uh, I think what's really exciting is, of course, the SIBO work, which we think encompasses about 60% of IBS. It's not 100. The other 40%, there's a lot of information on mast cells, eosinophils, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is becoming very important and may take up a subset of that as well. So we're inching, inching up trying to figure out the different, what is the basket and who's in the basket of this IBS. Okay. Um, can we, I did have a question about the basket, but maybe we'll go back to the basket. Can we tell in one part of the basket where we have methane? that we know is associated with constipation. Now with the new data that's coming out, do we know where it's located? And does that really matter? Patients are being told by other providers, it's in your small bowel because it's showing up early in the test. I don't know to what end that helps a patient, but they're curious right. and they want to know. So methane's a little complicated in comparison to hydrogen. So in a hydrogen breath test, the hydrogen usually starts very low. You take a sugar and then you see this rise in hydrogen, and it corresponds to what we believe is the small bowel, and we have a lot of data here at DDW to confirm that, that it's the small bowel. But your question's about methane. The problem with methane is that as soon as you do the first breath, we see methane, more than 10. And so the methane, there's not much going on in the small bowel at that point because you've been fasting for, for X number of hours. So the methane, in part, must be coming from the colon. But here at DDW, we are presenting the first pan gut assessment of people with methane to see where the methanogens are, who they are, and where are they really sitting in terms of high numbers. So obviously the colon has a tremendous amount of bacteria and methanogens, which are not bacteria, uh, and, but their relative abundance to other things there 
is not as high as in the small bowel. So the thing about methanogens is, if they're there, they're usually present in the small bowel and the colon. And so that fits with our term intestinal methanogen overgrowth, EMO, because it's not small intestine only, it's actually colon as well. Uh, and I'll just say one more thing because, uh, you know, it's sort of a question that always comes up is, why do I get emo? We know a lot about why people get SIBO with food poisoning and other things as a, as a starting point. But we really don't know why some people develop intestinal methanogen overgrowth and it just continues to go up with time, giving them more and more constipation. Do we know why it might show up very high at the baseline compared to a few time points later and does that matter? Does it matter with in any way, treatment or anything else? Right, so I, I, th I think the issue with methanogens, for example, when I started the answer the question uh, earlier, when you look for hydrogen, you have to have the sugar and then it, the sugar ferments and you produce hydrogen because that's the primary bacteria of the E. coli and Klebsiella of SIBO. The problem with methanogens is that you gotta take the sugar, then you gotta convert it in about 60 or 90 minutes by specific bacteria, which we're describing the names of now, Christensenella and Ruminococcus, they produce hydrogen. And then the hydrogen has to go to the methanogens, and then the methanogens have to convert it to methane. And that takes a long time. So what we think is you're either colonized with too many methanogens or you're not. And so the methane is coming from the colon in that first sample first thing in the morning. Wow. So you're not looking for, you're looking for whether you have too many methanogens, no matter where, or not, and I think that's the, the trick with emo. And that's really all that's important anyway. Right, I mean, positive or not, and you're over 10 or not. Uh, and we've actually shown that that correlates with symptoms. So whether it's uh, the stool methanogens or the small bowel methanogens, the higher they are, the more constipated you are. So did I understand you correctly? So if it shows up right off the bat, the very least it means is there's just a lot of methane. Right. If you have a 30 parts per million on time point zero before you even take the sugar, you're done pretty much. The problem is the test isn't designed that way. You can't just send in a single breath and then, you know, so, yeah. Is, is the person that has a high baseline more constipated? So uh, it has to do with two things, the amount of methane and the area under the curve of methane. So the more methane you have over all the time points during the first two hours, if you add them up or create an area under the curve, the greater your constipation is. Um, so, or if you look at the amount of M. smithii, the bug that produces methane in the stool, that's also correlating with the degree of constipation. We showed that in the paper just before the holidays. But we don't have any stool on a retail testing level yet. Well, <clears throat> the problem with stool on a retail test is because when you quantify methanogens, which some people try to do, you, there are various methodologies for quantifying, and we use a specific methodology, and when we do that, we see correlations, but we don't know, or we haven't identified the cutoff. So let's say the stool is, has to be greater than 10 to the sixth, or you know, one million uh, methanogens per ml, then that's constipated. Nobody's tried to figure out what the cutoff is. Um, and so if you don't have a cutoff, everybody has M. smithii in their stool, almost everybody. So you have to define a cutoff. You can't just do stool testing and say, oh, it's there. You know, it's gotta be a defined cutoff. So taking this one step further, uh, I think the last podcast you did last year that aired in January, you, you just said the sentence and 
nobody really followed up. If SIBO is a lack of migrating motor complex and EMO isn't, what is it then? And why should those people be taking a prokinetic or how should they use it or how do you use it in your clinic? Right. So um, when we do, <clears throat> when we looked at migrating motor complexes and when we look at this connection between food poisoning and the development of overgrowth, the food poisoning, the CDTB toxin leads to the autoimmunity, leads to the change in the migrating motor complex, leads to SIBO. That doesn't seem to pan out for EMO. Uh, but EMO slows transit too. And there are studies that say the faster you make transit, even if you don't treat the EMO, the lower the methanogens will be because you're flushing them out. Mm. So we tend to use the prokinetics after treatment on a different, for a different reason. Not to trigger the migrating motor complex so much as to trigger motility so that the motility will drive out the methanogens to some extent. And it's just between the patient and their provider, whether they take it in that case of emo, whether they take it at bedtime or take it in the morning. Correct. And this is something that's very confusing for even gastroenterologists to understand. You take them prokinetic at night, you don't cause diarrhea, you cause cleaning waves. If you take it in the morning, you cause diarrhea. So taking the prokinetic at the right time for the right patient makes a difference. So uh, in some of my emo patients, I'm more inclined to give it in the morning rather than at night. And it's all patient dependent, and so you, you, you fuss around with the dose and the time of the day and to get it right for that patient. Okay. Um, patients still are getting motility and pooping mixed up, and that feeds into just our previous question. Can you briefly just reiterate? I've heard you say it before, but they <clears throat> tend to want to take a prokinetic uh, herbal or pharmaceutical or a laxative to speed up their motility when actually it's just creating a bowel movement, right. which they think is motility. Well, so <clears throat> it was an interesting lecture this morning. Uh, Mayo Clinic finally says Enterobacteriaceae is elevated in people with abdominal pain in the small bowel, which is a great thing, but you know, we've sort of been saying that for 10 years, but <clears throat> it's not a knock. It's just exciting that some of the work is, is starting to corroborate what we're saying. But what they did do, which was interesting in their animals, is they showed that when they got SIBO, or they gave them these Enterobacteriaceae, which is basically SIBO, that they didn't have increased small bowel transit. And that's what we see. We don't see increased small bowel transit, because small bowel, you've got to look at SIBO as causing diarrhea for multiple potential mechanisms. One is that the colon might be moving faster, not the small bowel, because you have less migrating motor complexes, which is actually less movement in, to some extent, but that's fasting movement, not fed movement. You see how complicated it's yeah. getting already. Uh, and so we don't see rapid transit in IBS patients as much as we think the SIBO is contributing gas, which triggers contractions, can change the bile acid composition, which changes your, your diarrhea potential, uh, and other factors that bacteria can produce serotonin, for example, and serotonin can increase your colonic transit or speed it up. So all of these things are going to be unraveled in the next few years, but it's not as simple as saying, okay, bacterial overgrowth means more motility, or more motility means um, that you're going to reduce the bacteria. It's, it's not quite that simple. So it's just... Yeah, sorry, no, something you just said about the serotonin, my, my ears perked up. Yeah. Um, so we've been looking at serotonin for years at controlling motility, 
for the large bowel, uh, your thought now is that some of the bacteria could be producing serotonin themselves, and that could also be affecting your you know, transit time? Well, if, if you go to our poster, the, Juliana's doing our poster, she's a postdoc of ours, where we looked at, in SIBO, the, the expression in the tissue of those humans who have SIBO. And serotonin receptors are increased and various other motility activating uh, proteins are increased. So there is some change in motility because of what the bacteria are producing. And this morning they were talking about bacteria producing serotonin, which we know is true, there, there's data on that. So is it producing serotonin changing your motility? Or is the inflammation of the bacteria creating changes in serotonin receptors? Uh, we're trying to figure that out now, and I think over the next few years we'll figure out this story a little bit more clearly. The other thing that she shows in, in the poster that she's presenting is that visceral hypersensitivity proteins, um, things that generate visceral hypersensitivity, are also elevated because the bacteria are making that happen. Um, and then barrier function is affected as well. So um, the bacterial overgrowth is doing all sorts of wonderful things to you that you don't want. Wow. Those little pesky. Yeah, exactly. Those little pesky bacteria. Unbelievable. Um, switching gears a little bit in the future and putting some of these different diseases in the overall IBS umbrella, if that's the direction we might be going in, what biomarkers do we need for carbohydrate malabsorption? Um, specifically for those listening, um, dairy, fructose, fructan, sucrose. But sometimes when you say carbohydrate malabsorption, I see patients think that means potatoes and rice. So I always specify because doctors talk about carbohydrates a little different than patients do. So we have breath tests now for those. Like, what else do we need? Well, so. The old lactose tolerance test, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but basically you drink milk and then you look for sugar going up in your blood and it has to go up by a certain amount to indicate that you're absorbing the lactose. Right. That's testing true malabsorption. That's really what tells you if you're genetically malabsorbing or you have the genetics of not being able to absorb sugar. Uh, when you have bacterial overgrowth, it confuses everything because you're, you're getting bloating and gas from all the carbohydrates, uh, in particular the ones that are harder to digest, like lactose, which is why the North American consensus says, um, you know, you need to do a breath test or some test for SIBO before you do a test for carbohydrate malabsorption using breath testing, because if SIBO is there, it's confounding everything. At this DDW, at the oral that Gabri Gabriella, our team, uh, or one of our teammates is doing, it's, this is what's happening. E. coli and Klebsiella are elevated, which is the two SIBO bugs. Let me say this. On that presentation on Monday afternoon, we now know that SIBO is only two species encompassing 50% of the entire microbiome. In all of our small bowel data, there is no example of a destructive force on the small bowel microbiome like SIBO. It's phenomenal, and you can see the graphs when you, when you, if you happen to go to the presentation on Monday. But the other thing she finds is because of the way these organisms are structuring the microbiome and bullying all the other microbes out, <clears throat> they actually facilitate an augmentation of fermentation. What does that mean? So if you took lactose and you had your old regular microbiome, yeah, it's firing through the lactose a little bit, but not so fast. 
but all the machinery for digesting lactose has gone through the roof because E. coli and Klebsiella are there. They are so fast and so efficient that you will become bloated from any sugar because that was one of the top pathways that were elevated in SIBO. So not only are you, you have SIBO, so you have more bacteria to break down lactose, the bacteria are there are jacked up and they're able to digest these these sugars faster and more furious than anything else that's usually there. So that's why people get so symptomatic so quickly after eating. Um, so yeah. again, a lot of new things at this meeting that, that help answer some of the questions that I think you have and a lot of patients have. Yeah, that explains a lot. So what kind of biomarker testing would we be look, looking for in the future? Do we even know? Well, I, th I think what, <laughs> so what we'd love to do is to be able to sub categorize SIBO, and I think that we come up a little bit of ways with that with the gas microtype paper we published, where there's a microtype of E. coli Klebsiella, a microtype of hydrogen sulfide, and a microtype of methane, and targeting each of those is different in terms of treatment. So that, that's a biomarker in a sense. Um, you know, we're heading or we're trying to head towards a blood test to be able to diagnose SIBO. Uh, give us two years and we'll be there, uh, maybe less because we want to be able to see the microbiome in the blood and not just wow. in the breath. Uh, and that will make things more accurate and more. But, you know, it, breath testing is still really excellent because it correlates with symptoms, um, especially hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide and methane. And these carbohydrate malabsorptions, what kinds of biomarkers do we need for that? Yeah, a little tricky because you have to get rid of SIBO first. Um, oh. But if you're able to measure the enzymes by biopsy, that's mm -hmm. one way. Or if you treat the SIBO, it's gone, and you still have the carbohydrate maldigestion, then you have to avoid that sugar. So that's how we do it. Mm -hmm. So the current breath tests we, that are on the market for them now are sort of not really accurate in that the, your system's being totally jacked up by all those SIBO bacteria. So yeah. how do you even know? Right. Well, but, you, have to, you have to get rid of them. You have to right. get rid of those and then somebody like me that has hasn't had SIBO in a long time, then they're showing true malabsorption from my genetics or from birth. So correct, they're a little yeah. different that way. Exactly. Okay. Um, so before Jeff wraps up, can you tell us about some upcoming clinical trials that you have on your website? There's sure. nothing right. under those headings: short bowel syndrome, elemental diet. Everyone's going to be curious about that and Rifaxmax, and just generally, you know, what are you excited about? I know everything, but maybe something that you've <laughs> never, like you've never said anything about that blood test, so that was a nice little surprise, but yeah. anything else that, you know, you want to tease us with or surprise us, but in particular these things, because you're already giving us a little peek, but you're not telling us what they are. So. The short bowel syndrome is, is something we've been working on for about a decade, that we're using a long-acting GLP-1, uh, which is if you give it and you use the original GLP-1. What, what is that? It's a, it's a protein that's produced or like, like almost like insulin, but it's produced by the small bowel and it slows the gut down. And if we give it to patients with short bowel syndrome, the first trial we did, uh, patients just get off TPN within 24 hours. Wow. So it's... Fantastic, and now we got a long-acting version uh, that we're working on with a company, and they're they're in phase three. So we're starting that, I think, in June, July. And is it a pill? It's a shot. It has to be a shot because a pill, when you have short bowel syndrome, it just flies through. You know, it's got to be oh. a shot. Wow. 
about a once every two week shot. That's not bad. To get off TPN? Yeah, I no. do it. Um, and elemental diet, yeah, we're starting a trial. We're trying to develop an elemental diet that's tasty, <laughs> not the foul stuff that we we have uh, currently available, something that can be palatable or even be used as a meal supplement if you want to reduce the amount of um, non-digestible sugars and other things uh, that, that patients res respond badly to. In terms of SIBO, now that we've identified where the bugs are, uh, because it's not just E. coli and Klebsiella, because they live in particular niches within the small bowel. So we've finessed Rifaximax to try and get to those niches, and we get a lot better response with Rifaximax, uh, at least that's what we think, in, in vitro and in animals, for sure, that works better. Um, and then... Uh, and that's a pill. It's going to be a pill. a pill. Yeah. And then we're developing things in, in the line of hydrogen sulfide, and new stuff coming on methane I can't talk about. Uh, we got some amazing data last week on a new thing for methane that is completely different than anything we've done before. So um, super excited about what we're doing with methane. But you know, you Rifaximin is a great drug because you don't get resistance. We still don't see resistance in the microbiome, even though we're looking for resistance. Uh, but what we have to do is now treat the microtypes because you know, even though you get 44% of people with IBS responding to rifaximin, I, I think that's just great, but 70% would be better. And that's what I'd like to see with the new stuff that we're doing, and, and fingers crossed. I think what I took away from everything you said so far and sort of um, aligning it with patient comments I hear all the time that rifaximin is a good example. People will take rifaximin. Uh, hopefully they've been prescribed it for the right gas and they're just complaining how much pain they're in but it, now it seems like there's just so much we don't understand about these gases and these microbes that are just jacking everything up mm -hmm. so as a patient I think it's important to have some support from your provider that yes it's working and you just have to go through this patients get so uncomfortable sometimes right. I mean I, I remember I was too taking all those drugs well think about it this way if you've got E. coli and Klebsiella we now know these are the culprits in SIBO and IBS these are the these are the two characters it's it's that specific now they're hiding because they want to recolonize so we can get them down and the patient will have a brief response and symptoms but then they're there and they re repopulate. What I'd like to do is get them down to very, very little so they can't repopulate. Because what we see in, the, in our microbiome analysis when patients get rifaximin, it's like you've pulled all the weeds and the vegetables are growing perfectly. All the rest of the microbiome just comes back in and, and behaves beautifully. But as the E. coli and Klebsiella start to creep back, everything goes off the rails again. Um, so if we can get the E. coli and Klebsiella down to the point where the city is functioning normally and, you know, you have a few bad actors, you know, criminals who want to take over the city like, uh, like Gotham, uh, and they, they can't do it because there's too many good people around to prevent that from happening. And at the same time that you're working on this future shot, for example, you know, for short bowel or this future blood test for SIBO. So then, is that a right word? In a linear fashion, you're also working for the, the treatments. So you're working for oh, all refining the tests all, all in parallel. Yeah. yeah. Have to. So we have an exciting couple of years coming here in the future. Yeah, well, we've improved breath testing, so that's a good thing for now. And then uh, let's see what happens next. 
So it's been incredibly exciting for the last 20 years to see what you've done from where you started. And, you know, I look at IBS now as a very, very different type of condition or illness. So if we were to rename irritable bowel syndrome to better identify an illness that matches the science that you've seen, what do you think we should be thinking about calling it and, and why? That's a very controversial question, only because not, you know, renaming things is a little challenging, especially for something like irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, I dislike the term IBS, and most of my patients dislike the term for reasons that you and I have talked about before. How would you like to be called irritable? It's your bowel, and you have a syndrome, which means we have no idea what's going on. It's not a disease. You're not legitimate. A disease is legitimate. A syndrome is just a you know, constellation of symptoms. You know, we're sort of stuck. Uh, but then I also reflect on, and, and I don't know if you saw Barry Marshall's here at the meeting this oh. year. Uh, I just passed by him. You know, he won the Nobel Prize for H. pylori. Uh, and they didn't change peptic ulcer to H. pylori disease. They just said peptic ulcer disease. Uh, and so uh, I guess the question is, do we, is it important to change the nomenclature or the names, or is it important to figure out what's going on with each subset of IBS? Uh, it, hard to know how to how to do that. Uh, I don't really have a name because it's not going to be one name. It's going to be five or six names or ten names depending upon what the, the condition is. I, I guess where I see the future is will there be an irritable bowel syndrome left after everything is figured out and maybe IBS is relegated to five or ten percent of what it is today because the rest of it is figured out. Let's hope. That's what I see. No, to your point, it's very, you know, you started off uh, describing all of the other illnesses or diseases that we found as you're uncovering, you know, peeling this onion. Um, do you think that there's any uh, identity with IBD being like, you know, IBS as we see it now? Or do you think you're uncovering some of the reasons why IBD might be developing as well? Yeah, so I've been doing this, as you said, for now 26 years. and. I can't count on one hand of the, I don't know, 100,000 patients we've seen with IBS. On one hand, I can't count a patient who went from IBS to IBD. So I think they're two different animals. I do think there's IBD patients with IBS because 10% of everybody has IBS. So, but to see somebody with IBS 10 years into it flip into IBD, just haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. You can ask my colleagues. They haven't seen it. So I think they're two different animals. The, the, the question gets raised, and, and this is a couple of interesting things we've been discussing lately, is IBS protective of IBD? Uh, could that be something? Because I, nobody sees them flipping. The second thing is we just published an interesting meta-analysis that people with IBS have less polyps and less colon cancer. So, huh. So maybe IBS isn't so bad. I shouldn't say that because it's, it's a terrible condition, but there's some side benefit to IBS in sort of the dark corners of this disease, and uh, we have to unravel all of this. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, as you know, I mean, I was a patient who had IBS, labeled IBS for so many years. Then we found IBD, and I've always felt that my IBS was much more severe than my IBD because mm -hmm. it's the one that flares more often. The IBD doesn't. Yeah. However, to your point, uh, if they are different conditions or different illnesses, um, I, I'm hoping that some of the work that you're doing is going to uncover some of the IBD as well, because I do feel that small bowel 
in terms of bacteria mm -hmm. overgrowth and so forth contributes to what's going on with with IBD because there's so many IBD patients that, as you said suffer from IBS like symptoms in between flares absolutely there is IBS in IBD but the question is is the IBS the nidus for the IBD and I don't think that's true I think we do see patients for example maybe in your case where there are symptoms that go on for a few years and maybe the biopsies weren't taken in the right place maybe the inflammation just hadn't come to the surface yet but you end up labeling it as IBS because what are you going to label it as? You can't yeah. find anything. Uh, and this is the problem with irritable bowel syndrome is that you can't find something today, oh, just call it IBS. Uh, and so it's uh, this basket of all sorts of things until five years later and you sort of figure out what it was. So. Very interesting. Well, thank you. This has been uh, fascinating to actually dig into the bacteria in the gut and what you've unraveled in 26 years. I, I don't know how much longer you're going to continue doing this. If it's another 26 years, I feel you know great for the people that uh, are looking for answers. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you.